0: 321. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Daniel J. Flynn. He published a book that I completed this morning, excellent book. And I lived in Northern California, so I was somewhat familiar with a lot of the events. Let me turn that off. Sorry. Um, and I just had a little read back. Anyway, the title of the book is Colt City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and the Ten Days that Shook San Francisco. Daniel J. Flynn is a senior editor of the American Spectator. He's also written other books. He, he published The War on Football in 2013, Blue Collar Intellectuals 2011, A Conservative History of the American Left, 2008, 2008, Intellectual Morons 2004, and Why the Left Hates America, 2002. His articles have appeared in Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, New York Post, City Journal, and National Review. His website is www.flinfiles.com, F-L-Y-N-N-F-I-L-E-S.com. And he's a... Um, putting out regular articles every week for the American spectator. So he's definitely still writing, but I'm delighted to have him on the show because it was an excellent book and it uh, really opened up this fascinating series of events that took place in 1978 in San Francisco. So Mr. Flynn, are you there?
1: I am. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name or aren't familiar with your work, can you talk a little bit about your journalism career and what led you to write this book, Colt City?
1: Well, I think the second question is a little easier. Um, You know, when I was a little boy, I I didn't grow up in Northern California, but when I was about five years old, I heard about what had happened at Jonestown, that there were a number of people that killed themselves at the request of a, a, you know, their leader. And I thought, wow, this is the weirdest thing that I have ever heard in my life. When I got a little bit older, I found out that the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone, had made Jim Jones, uh, had put him on the city's housing commission and in effect made him the, um, the chairman of the housing commission so that he would, um, you know, he was, he was the large, essentially the largest landlord in the city of San Francisco. Um, and I thought, wow, no, this is really the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, so the story just got stranger and stranger and pulled me in more because when we think about serial killers or mass murderers We generally don't think of people in with the in crowd. I mean, we think of a guy like Charlie Manson being being an outsider, someone who is not going to be invited to too many cocktail parties, is not going to be introducing, you know, the future first lady of the United States like Jim Jones did or Richard Ramirez or any of these guys that you'd see uh, on Sunday nights on on cable television. They have all these documentaries on these people. So Jim Jones is a little different. He was very much in with the in crowd in San Francisco. And when I heard that, I thought, no, this is the strangest thing I've ever heard. I want to know more about this. And it set me on this journey from about 2008 to 2018. Um, I was researching and, and writing this book, made a number of trips to San Francisco, interviewed a whole lot of people, um, which is difficult to do because, you know, not only has 40 years passed, but you had 918 people died in, in, as a result of, of um you know, uh, Jim George, Jim Jones ordering, um, his followers to kill themselves. So most of those people are no longer with us. And in the 40 years, a lot of them have died since. So it's difficult to get people. But once I did interview people, you know, they told really amazing stories.
0: Yeah. And you have them in the book. I mean, for people who don't know what happened or, or may not be as, as detail oriented about the situation with Jim Jones, can you just re- recollect what happened in 1978 and what led up to that?
1: Well, prior to 9-11, um, Jonestown was the largest loss of civilian life in American history. That was a man-made catastrophe. In other words, it wasn't a natural disaster. Um, so it was a rather massive thing that happened. And essentially, um, the, the, the short version of it is, is that Jim Jones um, was engaged in all sorts of illegalities and immoralities in, in, in San Francisco left in 1977 and joined some followers that were already down in in Jonestown, Guyana. They purchased a tract of land in 1973, about 3,000 acres. And initially a lot of the people that I spoke to described it as rather idyllic, that it was just a a wonderful place. They felt like they were like American pioneers building something out of nothing. Now when Jim Jones came, he brought hundreds and hundreds of his followers And the community was not ready to support that many people. So even though it was an agricultural commune, they were importing food to the very end. Uh, You know, people weren't getting much sleep. They were deprived. You know, they were were, uh, sent to work. They were about, you know, 16 hours a day uh, in the fields in the equatorial sun. And for, you know, five or six hours a day, you had Jim Jones on a public address system just sort of um, lecturing these people and hectoring them. And so it was not a a place that was conducive to mental health or any kind of health. And Jim Jones, um, partly drugs, partly him going crazy, partly his communistic viewpoint, all of this led to him wanting to um, leave this life and take all of his followers with him. And on November 18th, 1978,
0: that's what he did. And, you know, it kind of was a long. I'm sorry. Please continue. No, go ahead. I'm, uh, oh, I was just going to say that, what were the ideology of him? I mean, Jim Jones himself is such a peculiar figure. What led him to want to go try to be, start a utopia in Guyana?
1: Well, Jim Jones, although he's not the the best authority on Jim Jones, uh, he was asked, you know, why did you go into the ministry and all that? And his answer, at least in, a, in a, like a sort of an autobiographical sketch, he said, um, how do I... Um, assert my Marxism or something to that effect and he thought go into the ministry and so he you, you know Marx called Christianity the opiate of the masses or religion the opiate of the masses and Jim Jones took it a step further and thought he could use the opiate of the masses to um, propagate Marxism and that's what he did. So if you got into the inner circles of Jonestown or not even just the inner circles, but if you went to a Jonestown service, you know you could see Jim Jones stomping on a Bible, Uh, denouncing the stupid sky God, uh, telling his followers, there's no heaven up there, so we have to make heaven down here. Um, In other words, he was someone that was trying to make heaven on Earth, and he thought socialism was the vehicle to do that. And if you were in People's Temple, you were taught that socialism was God, and that since Jim Jones was the greatest exponent of socialism on the planet Earth, that made him God. And many of the people in Jonestown believed that he was God. And they believed this because he, you know, one of the things that he did, probably the best way to get in followers, and most of these people were old, a lot of them sick, many of them African American, um, is he would perform fake faith healings. So people would come to him with ailments, um, and they would document this. So one of the parts of the book that was very easy is that Jones documented all of these faith healings that he did and so you can you know you can look in the records and see who was cured of brain cancer here and they had very specific boasts of how many people he raised from the dead and he was he would warn his followers listen whatever you do if you die don't use that embalming fluid because there's no hope after that i can't bring you back to life after you use the embalming fluid so people really believed that he created miracles not only did they believe it back then, but when I interviewed one of, you know, several of his followers, Actual, but actually, but one of his followers was very, very open about this, that he still to this day believed that Jim Jones could cure people, that he had supernatural powers, that he could read minds. And I said, well, um, I asked him, you know, when did you realize this guy was a scam? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, when did you realize this was a bunch of uh, abracadabra? So I don't know what you're talking about. I said, when did you realize it was all fake? When did you realize this guy was a charlatan? And he said, oh, no, Jim Jones had power. And he went on to describe that power. And it wasn't just power of a psychological sort or a charismatic sort. He talked about Jim Jones reading minds. He talked about Jim Jones curing cancer. He talked about Jim Jones predicting the future. And to this day, a guy who turned his back on Jim Jones several years prior to Jonestown still believes that this man has power, had power. And I have to conclude, well, he must have had power of some sort. might not have been a supernatural power, but anyone who 40 years after the fact can still convince someone that he had these magic powers, well, he had some sort of power, right?
0: Right. So he had power over a lot of people. He was definitely the, the guru, the cold head. But he used all these tricks that were stuff in evangelical or Pentecostal faith healing. People investigate yeah, he, your background. He,
1: he meshed. Pentecostalism with Marxism. And a lot, many of the people that came into people's temple uh, came into it from a a Christian background. Um, And so for those people to, um, to sort of give up on that and and to view Jim Jones as God, and and, and it got more extreme when they went down to Jonestown, it got very extreme. Um, I talked to several people that were in Jonestown, including a guy who was shot and another one who who witnessed partially a, a woman, you know, the aftermath of a woman killing her children with a knife. Um, he, he, these people said that Jim Jones confiscated the Bibles when they got to Jonestown, and when they ran out of toilet paper, he instructed the followers to use the Bibles as toilet paper. Now, the interesting thing about this, uh, you know, there's about 10 interesting things about that, but when when the first draft of history was written, You know, the New York Times described um, People's Temple as a group of fundamentalist Christians. Um, The Associated Press called them religious zealots. Um, I don't know any fundamentalist Christians that would use the Bible as toilet paper. I don't know any fundamentalist Christians that would, you know, uh, eliminate celebration of Christmas or Christian holidays. And that's what they did in Jonestown. Um, And I don't know that you'd have any fundamentalist Christians denouncing God and saying the Bible is a lie. That's what Jim Jones did. Yet, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book is because there were so many misconceptions that this was a group, you know, like almost like the moral majority or something. It was the furthest thing from it. It was an atheistic cult that, um, you know, was was dedicated to Marxism and would have people like Angela Davis and Huey Newton address them and all sorts of people from the real far left um, would come into their their orbit.
0: And you had written that the the revolutionary suicide idea came from Huey Newton himself, like he wrote a book. So I found that that was something I didn't know about Jim Jones. Can you talk about his left kind of uh, group, the people he networked with in in the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly um, just for Huey Newton, I mean, he wrote a book in, I think, 1973 called Revolutionary Suicide. Now, what he was talking about was a little bit different than what Jones wanted to do. Huey Newton said that, you know, revolutionary suicide is when The situation, someone, some radical gives their life for the the better future world possible, Um, whereas reactionary suicide is someone that just had despair conditions and killed themselves because they wanted to get out. Now, that's not exactly what Jones did. So he took a name, but not necessarily the concept to a T. Now, what what Newton was talking about was pretty idiotic to begin with, but obviously it doesn't doesn't match what Jones did. Um, But Jones called it revolutionary suicide. And he talked at great length about Huey Newton in uh, Jonestown, Guyana. And one of the reasons he did that was about two thirds of his followers were African-American. So you would also have people like Angela Davis uh, addressing the people in Jonestown through, um, you know, basically wired through a, a transmission from the Bay area would come down. It would, it would go through the, the speakers down in, uh, in Jonestown. And she'd talk about how, how there was, she knew there was a powerful conspiracy against the people's temple. And this played into Jones's paranoid fantasies. Um, In the Bay Area, you had any number of people that were, um, I mean, obviously the book focuses on the relationship between Harvey Milk, um, who's become rather famous. He has an airport terminal named after him in San Francisco. There was a movie starring Sean Penn about him a few years ago. Um, President Obama gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, put his name on a Navy ship, so he's become a rather, you know, he's had a rather good afterlife, uh, Harvey Milk, Milk, whereas Jim Jones hasn't had very good afterlife. So Harvey Milk was certainly someone that was one of the big allies of Jim Jones, and and this is basically in, in microcosm. This is how it worked. Um, Jones gave Milk, you know, hundreds of volunteers for his campaign. Milk had run for office three times and lost each time, but then he, you know, he, he hooked up with Jim Jones and he won. And so how did he do that? Well, Jones gave him these volunteers. He was able to speak to, um, you know, an audience of a thousand or so people through, through Jones's um, pulpit. Jim Jones gave him a printing press, um, gave him all sorts of publicity and so if he needed a rally, if he needed people to knock on doors, whatever he needed, he could get from People's Temple. Harvey Milk gave Jim Jones, something far more valuable in return, which was credibility. And so when things start going south for Jones in South America, a lot of his politician friends go east and west. They, they run off. They run. You know, they get try to get away. Harvey Milk sticks by him. And he writes a number of letters to very powerful people, to world leaders like Forbes Burnham. He says, such greatness have I, have I found in People's Temple and, and just gushes over all the great work of People's Temple. He writes to the uh, Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare in the Carter administration, a guy named Joseph Califano. That's um, was sort of one of the big departments back then and since been reorganized. He said that People's Temple was solving the world's food crisis. This was a group that was importing food. They were farmers, but they were importing food because they couldn't even feed themselves. And he said they were, they were solving the world's food crisis. He said they were taking um, juvenile delinquents and giving them, you know, trades that they could come back to America and be useful citizens. He said it was a retirement community that old people would pay thousands of dollars to be a part of. Um, and this, he's talking about a concentration camp here, and yet he's right. putting it. It's, it's it like a good luck.
0: One of the interesting things you had in your book is that they were they were relying on social security and other <laughs> gifts from the American public to survive so.
1: that, that's right that they they had all of these old people they had foster kids, they had old people, they had a lot of ways to get money out of the government into their coffers um probably not you know it's probably better to do what some of these other televangelists do and go after a few rich people, uh, but instead they went after many poor people and they got a lot of government checks. So that was a big part of it. Milk also, you know, one of the big controversies with with People's Temple was Jones kidnapped a seven-year-old boy, six-year-old boy, John Victor Stone, who had parents who were in the People's Temple, but um, decided, hey, this isn't for me, and they couldn't get their their kid out. Grace Stone left in 1976 on the on the Fourth of July, and her husband left about a year later and Jones wouldn't give the child back and insisted that it was his kid. Now, he thought all of those people, he was Father Jim, so he thought they were all his kids. Um, and so Harvey Milk, rather than take the word of the people that the hospital said were the parents, the people that were on a birth certificate, you know, the people who were the parents, he took Jones aside, wrote a letter to Jimmy Carter to try to stop any intervention from the State Department from getting this kidnapped kid back from Guyana with his rightful parents in the Bay Area. And he said that Jones was known as a man of the highest character, that one of the parents was a bald-faced liar, the other one was a blackmailer. And I don't know how much influence that this letter had on Jimmy Carter, um, but we do know that the State Department not only did nothing to help this couple get their kid back, but they really sided on behalf of People's Temple For any of the the so-called defectors, the people in, in concerned relatives, when they would give information to the folks in the consulate down in Guyana, there was a guy in the consulate that would feed that information back to Jim Jones. That was a terribly reckless and dangerous thing that they did. And, you know, I think the reason that they took Jones aside is that he had all of these bigwigs that knew him in San Francisco, including one of them. I mean, when Rosalind Carter went to San Francisco in 1976 to campaign for her husband, who introduces her to, to an audience? It's Jim Jones. This guy that would kill over 900 people introduces the future first lady of the United States um, when she comes to campaign for Jimmy Carter. So the idea that Jones was not on the radar of the Carters is pretty ridiculous. I mean, he had phone conversations with Rosalind Carter that he he, he taped. So we know that they knew each other. And it's not like I can call the First Lady of the United States or you can call the First Lady of the United States. So he had a he get a hotline in with some of these people. And when people started saying, hey, you know what? This guy isn't such a great guy. Um, they didn't believe it. Right.
0: And there's some real problems. I mean, his, he was always on drugs, right? Wasn't he kind of a, a multi-pharmaceutical user, Jim Jones?
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, they go to California. People's Temple starts in Indianapolis. And Jim Jones has a pentecostal ministry and in indianapolis you can imagine his part you know he has a radio show in indianapolis kind of a a late night sunday bible show that you might hear on some low low watch stations but he had a pretty pretty big station that's still around now that ran his radio show um and as you can imagine indianapolis his kind of message is not going to play as well as it's going to play in the bay area um and so in the mid-1960s he moves out to california and in California, he starts taking on a, um, a fashion accessory that a lot of Californians you'll you know you'll see in California, which is sunglasses. And you think about that, like who wears sunglasses? Well, you know, people in the sun wear sunglasses, but also people whose eyes are dilated, who are on drugs, who are drunk, uh, they might wear sunglasses to hide that. And so it's very difficult to see when his his habit became raging and out of control. But there were a number of people, survivors, that talked about who got him the drugs. And they had nurses in his his um, employ. And um, by the time they're in Jonestown, he's slurring his words. He's having to, to down all sorts of Pepsis to stay awake. And when he's not awake to lecture the people out in the fields on the loudspeakers, they have tape recordings of him. And that's what's going out. And they think they're being lectured by Jim Jones. But it's really um, this other kind of, uh, you know, it's a recording of Jim Jones.
0: The tape right. There's a lot of records. You said you went through the records of his speeches through what San Diego State or something like that. So, a lot of that stuff is available, correct?
1: Yeah. So, a lot of the research I did was at the California Historical Society, and that for that I had to go out to San Francisco. Um, and some of I got some stuff at for the book at the San Francisco Public Library. I made a few trips there. Um, and also online, there's a great resource at, uh, I believe it's, is it, is it, you know, it's, it's a school in San Diego, whether it's San Diego state or the, yeah, I think it's San Diego state could be wrong about that. Um, the interesting thing about that is that the, you know, it's great stuff that they've compiled there and it's online, it's accessible. I don't want to knock those people at all. Um, but the, you know, they will come out with books every few years, like, you know, with titles, like a sympathetic history of people's temple, Or, um, you know, things that that are are looking at the people's temple from a very positive perspective. And the reason that they're doing this is that the woman that's in charge, two of her sisters were Jones's lieutenants. One of one of her sisters was impregnated by Jones and had a kid that was killed down there. Both of them died. One of them was probably the last person to die at Jonestown and may have actually inflicted the bullet into Jim Jones before killing herself. So um, it's really odd. It'd be as if like, um, you know, like Goebbels' relatives, uh, you know, came out saying, hey, these people really weren't so bad. Something unseemly about it that I, you know, I find gross. But at the same time, they've put together an amazing, um, you know, very accessible uh, speeches that they've transcribed and they put recordings up online and and it's not like that has a bias or anything like that. So um, I appreciate what they did. I think that's my main view is appreciation. But sort of the, the smaller view is that I find what they did strange. I think they I think they attacked my book or something like that when it came out. But it's not like, you know, there was a lot of people reading what they were doing anyways.
0: But Harvey Milk was a kind of like Jim Jones in the sense that they both uh, found California a place to reinvent themselves. Would you?
1: Yeah, I mean, Jim Jones was, was a monkey salesman in Indianapolis. He was selling monkeys door to door. I don't know how I don't know how you can make money doing that, but that was one of his little hustles. And Harvey Milk, similarly, he had a lot of hustles going on. He was a very intelligent man. Um, he was a school teacher. That didn't work out for him. He um, was a stock analyst. He didn't find that fulfilling after a while, even though he made money. He was working on Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair. So when the 60s kind of went in a different direction, Harvey Milk went in a different direction. He was in 1964. He was handing out Goldwater literature with his 16 year old boyfriend in the subways of New York City, in the subways of Manhattan. And, you know, four or five years later, he has really long hair. He's wearing beads everywhere. He's working. You know, he's hanging out with the sort of the factory set that hangs out with Andy Warhol. He's uh, dabbling in Jesus Christ Superstar and hair. He really, you know, when they say what a long, strange trip it's been in the 1960s, you talk about a guy like like Harvey Milk. And he had been to um, San Francisco before uh, when he was in the Navy. The interesting thing is when he later has a political career in in San Francisco, Harvey Milk boasts about being kicked out of the Navy uh, with a dishonorable discharge because he was a homosexual. Now, the reality is he got an honorable discharge. He served honorably. but he thought he would get street cred by saying, "Oh, I got kicked out because of, of gays in the military." That's, it's absolutely not true. I have his honorable discharge. He served his time uh, there, and so um, you know there was something of a kind of a Music Man, P.T. Barnum character with with Milk that he he would you know say a lie to sort of further his his career. Um, you know, like a lot of politicians. But he also do. just
0: started to interrupt too. But he was also not out as kind of a vocal homosexual activist until later on in his life, right? I think that's, that's correct.
1: Um, you know, it's a fact that, you know, Harvey Milk went around telling young people that they should come out. The reality is that Harvey Milk never came out to his parents. Um and, you know, they lived well into his adulthood. He never came out and said, I'm gay. I you know, maybe maybe they figured it out after a while. But um he never did that. And so he offered advice that he didn't himself take. It wasn't until he got to San Francisco that he became a real activist. Now he had dated a real activist um, years prior, a guy that was in a real prominent homosexual rights organization when that wasn't very fashionable and he was scared to death and actually broke off the relationship because of it. Um, In San Francisco, he became a little bit more emboldened and um, he thought, what if I become, you know, I want to become mayor or maybe I can become a supervisor. And that's what he set out to do. And so in 1973, it was, Still in San Francisco, um, a bit of a, you know, you'd be like a novelty candidate if you ran as a gay man. And, of course, a lot of gays didn't like the fact that Harvey Milk was running because they thought, well, you know, there's a straight politician that's going to be more palatable to the mass of voters, but yet they can carry our baggage. They can get our issues over. And Harvey Milk, to his credit, he didn't see it that way. He said, you know, they're ready for this and they weren't ready for it in 1973. But what was a what was a novelty campaign in seventy three? By um, nineteen seventy seven, people took it seriously, and part of the reason they took it seriously was because of Jim Jones.
0: Interesting. So Jim Jones was a catalyst. So they're both they both know each other, but Jones was kind of like a kingmaker because he had so much resources, right? So Moscone certainly.
1: In a very literal sense, in San Francisco, um, people rightly, I think without exaggeration, credit Jim Jones with the election of George Moscone as mayor of San Francisco in 1975. Now, what happened that year where there was a guy named John Gelata, who was a Republican and who was really doing well, and they had a runoff. Dianne Feinstein lost, and so it was Moscone versus Guy Gelata. And because there was a public employees union strike that you had policemen and firemen going on strike, which is very difficult for a city when you have the police go on strike. A city like San Francisco in the mid nineteen seventies. Remember, this is the place uh, the, the Dirty Harry movies were set, so it was a very different place back then. And the police were saying, "It was we're not the Wild the-
0: West. It was it, like the Wild West or Barcoast. There's so much going on in the seventies. Wow, there Including was so story.
1: much going on, and so um, people got fed up and they went." to this guy, Barbara Gelata, who almost won. It's very difficult to think of a Republican winning in in San Francisco, and this is sort of maybe the last gasp of it, but a lot of the conditions, people were fed up with the crime, they were fed up with the public employee unions, and so it ended up being that that Moscone won by about 3,000 votes. He, He thanked Jones. A lot of people thought, because Jones was able to put out thousands of volunteers and just flood the streets with people knocking on doors and going to rallies for Moscone, that that must have been the difference. Now, on top of those above board activities, you had Jones bussing in people from out of San Francisco to vote in that election. So a lot of people thought maybe that he tipped the scales through um,
0: voter fraud, right? Voter fraud.
1: voter fraud. And so the uproar about that was so great that in uh, that once Moscone got elected, the, the administration, the the um, district attorney was forced to investigate Moscone's election. And this is the, you know, I think tells you all you need to know about how Jim Jones operated in San Francisco. The guy investigating People's Temple and voter fraud in the 1975 uh, election for the district attorney was the district attorney's deputy, but he was also Jim Jones's deputy. He was Jones's second in command. That is how integrated they were with the power structure right. that when it came to investigating their own wrongdoings, they had their own people doing it. They had their own people in the newspapers. And so um that didn't go very far. You know, lo and behold, they found that they didn't commit voter fraud. So right. my,
0: you've got your own guy investigating it, right?
1: That's right. Uh, that's right.
0: And there were other people were trying to, I think it was King Kills or King Solving, who were trying to expose some of the wrongdoings of People's Temple, but Nobody really wanted to hear it, and uh, you know, it just a lot of those stories got spiked. Is that right?
1: That's right. So Lester Kinsolving in the early 1970s wrote a expose, an eight part expose, uh, I believe, for the San Francisco Examiner. He was a religion editor there, and it basically exposed all of the things that journalists would later expose in '77. But he did it first, and everyone ignored him because he was Lester Kinsolving. And you had people like um, Abe Rosenthal. <clears throat> from the New York Times that we'd expect such from, from someone like Lester Kinsolving. And um even the fellow that um he's his name is escaping me, but the journalist that Robert Downey Jr. played in the movie Zodiac. Right,
0: Avery? Was that Avery? Yeah, Paul Avery, that's Paul right. Avery.
1: Um, you know, was just dismissing this like whatever, all I've heard about People's Temple is great and I can vouch them and this kind of thing. So all the journalists were laughing at Lester Consolving. They even did a, a, a something on the television where they distorted his voice or they distorted him and made him seem rather monstrous. So he was kind of um, dismissed in his series, which was an eight-part series because of People's Temple protests. They ended up spiking the last four parts of the series. And so it really didn't go anywhere except as to make Jim Jones a little bit more paranoid. And, um it's funny that people will dismiss what Consolving did back in, in in the early '70s, but the reality is if people had listened to him, this whole thing would have been averted.
0: right. there were other there were tons of warning signs and and Jones himself was very um sexually profligate, like he was all over the place. There was tons of abuse and all kinds of things inside that people should have really seen.
1: Yeah, men, women you know, anything that, you know, in between, I mean, he was up for it. Um, he was arrested in Los Angeles for, uh, solicitation in a bad cruise.
0: He was cruising, right?
1: Yeah. He was cruising and, um, he would, um, you know, he, 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 would usually be, I mean, he would always be the one who was, I guess, the more dominant figure in the, in the relationship to not to paint a picture of it, but that was sort of his thing. And he liked to sort of, um, he, he liked to be the one uh, – I, I think he I think he had a, a very sadistic streak. So even if you, you leave aside the sexual stuff, um, there were instances where, you know, so, some lady was a vegetarian, and he made her eat chicken in front of everyone. Um, pe- pe- weak members of the People's Temple, if they made, got in trouble, um, they were put in these People's Temple boxing matches where the whole congregation would watch someone get destroyed. One of the guys who was a really good bo- boxer – he changed his name in People's Temple to Ken Norton. Other people were changing the name to Stalin and Che and um, Lennon. And uh, G- some people changed the name to Jim Jones. But this guy changed his name to Ken Norton because his reputation in People's Temple was that he would beat people up in the, in the boxing. And usually it pitted – you know, they weren't the same weight class. It pitted – you know, it was unequal pairing. And so people would really get beat up. And people couldn't help but see that Jim Jones was enjoying this. They had a board. a a paddle, which they, they whacked the kids with, they called the board of education. Um, You know, there was a guy caught molesting uh, one of the kids and they, they tortured him. Um, You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people would say, Oh, well, that's okay. Whatever. But they ran their own kind of judicial system and issued their own punishments. um, And, and a lot of the punishments were rather brutal.
0: And uh, so there were also kind of warnings that people like uh, said that, is kind of a maniac, and, it, and Jonestown is dangerous, and that filtered through all the way up to the Bay
1: Area. All
0: right, we're back. There was oh, great. Flips.
1: Technical difficulties. Yeah,
0: really. I, it said StreamYard said it might have been on their side. So, um Anyway, so the relationship between Milk and Jones is for real. On Milk's side, what led up, I mean, you this is the 10 days that shook San, San Francisco. What led up to uh, how how milk and and Jones everything that happened in seventy eight.
1: So um, Harvey Milk and a guy named Dan White were freshman supervisors on the board in San Francisco. Um, White was, you know, they're both Democrats. Um, White certainly wasn't the most conservative Democrat on the board, even though he's portrayed that now. Um, but he was from a more conservative district, and certainly was more. Of that wing. Now, um, the, 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 to say someone's sort of more conservative in San Francisco, it's kind of a, you know, um, it's a silly point to make, because relative to the rest of the country, you'd recognize Dan White as sort of a garden variety Democrat, with some blue collar leanings. I mean, he was very much in favor of, of gun control. Ironically, he was very much in favor of affirmative action and voted that way. He voted to raise taxes, and then he voted to cut taxes. Um, and sometimes he would vote, on gay rights issues with Harvey Milk and sometimes he would vote against. And on the board, um, White had an issue that was of, of great concern to him in his district, which was to not put this home for juvenile offenders in what was, I think, a convent or something like that prior to that. I think the people would have rather had the convent, right? Um, and so um, they had the the vote and Milk had assured uh, White that he said, you earned your money this time. That he, he, You know, I'm voting with you and when it came to vote white uh milk voted against white and white felt betrayed white was a very competitive man i don't think he t- he took things like loyalty very seriously too seriously and at that point the relationship um started to fray you know it was still the case that white and milk would go out for breakfast sometimes and coffee um when white had a kid milk came to the the baptism So there was still a relationship there, but it was not the same as it was prior to those first few months. And um, as far as on the board was concerned, you know, Milk was usually on the losing end of six to five votes and White was on the winning end. However, Milk was obviously adapting to life as a supervisor um, a lot better than than Dan White was. Uh, Dan White, the first day in office, he pulls uh, a. Basically, a coup, you know, usually in San Francisco, the tradition was that the top vote getter would be president of the Board of Supervisors. He wanted his political mentor, Dianne Feinstein, to be the president of the board. And so he engineers this where a guy named Quentin Kopp, who was the most conservative Democrat on the board, and there was one Republican and this guy, Quentin Kopp, was certainly the most conservative. He goes against Kopp and goes for Feinstein. Feinstein's kind of a middle of the road Democrat on the board, and she becomes the president. From that day to his last day in City Hall, Dan White didn't have much of an effect at all, um, even though he would usually vote the right way, vote on the winning side. Um, Harvey Milk was, you know, um, took to politics like, a, a you know, a fish to water and took to the board of supervisors like a fish to water. Um, but from that point, when Milk betrayed him, the relationship wasn't very good. And um, or the relationships, I should say the relationship deteriorated. Um, and so. Towards the end of, of the year um, in November, White decides to resign impulsively. He says, I want to resign. The police unions and all of the, you know, um, people that had firemen, you know, White was a former policeman. He was a former fireman. They all came to him and said, we, just, we rang doorbells for you. We held signs for you. And you just resign out of nothing. Ask for your job back. And he goes to the mayor and says, you know, I, I don't want to resign after all. Could I have my job back? And the mayor, publicly, the mayor said, yeah, you you know, I'm considering it that he'd ever resign. He's back on the board. Um, And um, Harvey Milk gets in the mayor's ear and says, you know what, Um, we're on the wrong side of a lot of six to five votes. And he is the deciding vote on a lot of these things. So why are you doing this? I mean, it's rather Machiavellian of Milk, but it's good politics. I mean, it's, it's smart politics. And the mayor says, yeah, you're right, and decides to reverse himself. Well, for White, who was a guy that um, you know, couldn't take losing and, and didn't like the idea of someone betraying him, he viewed this as a, the betrayal of all betrayals. He was under a lot of pressure with his family. He wasn't making a whole lot of money. He actually took a pay cut to be on the board of supervisors. I think they were making $9,500. He was really under a lot of stress. And probably had something wrong with him, like bipolar or or something like that. I mean, they use this Twinkie defense later. Um, The guy had something wrong with him. I don't know what he had wrong with him. I I don't don't think it was sugar. I don't think it was Twinkies. But he had something wrong with him. Um, And so he comes into City Hall um, nine days after Jonestown. He murders George Moscone. He murders Harvey Milk. And... um, during this, in the middle of this, Dianne Feinstein comes to him and says, "Dan, can I speak to you? Can I speak to you?" Because he was coming that day to 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 pull a stunt because the mayor was going to appoint his successor. And initially, people thought maybe the Jonestown people did this because what had happened in Jonestown nine days earlier was so shocking to the city that people thought, "Well, maybe maybe the Jim Jones's assassins did this." But very quickly, very clearly, people realized that this was this disgruntled former. Um, supervisor who did this. The interesting thing about all this is that um, kind of like Jim Jones, the hist- you know, that first draft of history makes things um, you know, makes us think something happened that really didn't happen. Over the years, there has been this idea that um, Dan White was some kind of conservative Republican. When he was not, he was a garden variety Democrat, a San Francisco Democrat at that. There was an idea that he killed because he was um, hated gays. Um, The reality was that I I spoke to a guy named Ray Sloan, who was Dan White's um, chief of staff. He was his business partner. He was a guy who um, ran his campaign. He was campaign manager. He was gay. Dan White knew he was gay. Uh, Wasn't really talked about or anything like that. But the idea that you would be so motivated by you hated gays so much that you would kill a man for it. And yet you would hire someone as a, a gay manager, your, your chief of staff, your business partner, all this kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Right. And White actually went to the largest gay rights fundraiser in the history of the United States up until that point, paid hundred dollars to defeat the Briggs initiative, which was a I think kind of an ill-advised initiative where it would empower school boards to fire teachers, not merely because they were gay, but even if they supported gay rights um, that they could fire them. And initially that had a lot of support in California Ronald Reagan came out against it and the poll numbers reversed and it lost, you know, almost 60, 40. Um, And White was like all the supervisors. White was against that. Um, There were certainly some votes. There was a gay rights ordinance that he voted against in San Francisco. And he was the sole vote against that. But that, I think, was more to, you know, give kind of an in your face to Milk because Milk had done the same thing on an issue he cared about. And so he returned the favor. And It looked kind of petty in the process because that really wasn't where his heart was on those issues. So, um, he had kind of a mixed bag on those issues, but in the years since he's been portrayed as someone that is just sort of motivated by homophobia, which, you know, begs the question, why did he kill George Moscone, who, uh, you know, was the furthest thing from a homosexual.
0: He had four kids, right?
1: (laughs) He had a a bunch of kids, but he had, you know, he had a lot of things going on. And so, um, It's just um, one of these narratives that I think they've tried to make Milk into a gay Martin Luther King figure. You know, this racist James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King. So let's say this homophobe killed Harvey Milk. Um, That's not what happened.
0: Right. And that's an important aspect of your book is this notion of revisionism, historical revisionism, and also people trying to protect ideology and things like that, especially about Milk and Jim Jones, about these stories, how they got definitely kind of got – spoonerized or expurgated certain aspects of it. But can you, do you have time? We're in about 45 minutes. Do you have time As to take time a few want. questions? Yeah. Okay, so Lance Gray is asking you, did any of J- Jones's SF political mm-hmm. pals follow, follow him to
1: Guyana? Well, that, sure. Um, the, I mean, most of them didn't stay there, but um, the Lieutenant Governor of the state, Mervin uh, Mervyn um went down there and he proclaimed it, you know, almost like a paradise. Um, You had Charles Lane and I'm sorry, Mark Lane and Charles Gary, Mark Lane being sort of a conspiracy theorist who's famous for his ideas about the Kennedy assassination, then the MLK assassination and Charles Gary being, you know, famous 1960s lawyer of various cause celebs, including Huey Newton and black people in the black Panthers. They acted as his lawyers. They went down there and they said that they were so impressed uh, a guy named Carlton Goodlett, who was a big wig in San Francisco, he went down there and, and basically compared it to Paradise or something along those lines. Um, they were looking again. They were looking at a concentration camp and they were coming home and saying that this was this was Paradise. Now, Lane and Gary, the two lawyers, were in Jonestown when the murders happened. Jones allowed them to leave. He allowed three other people to leave, two brothers. I interviewed one of them for the book. They gave them three million dollars or so, I think, in gold and cash, and he instructed them to give that money to the Soviet Union, to the, the embassy, the Soviet embassy in Guyana. Um, I don't think they made, you know, that's a lot, very heavy, all that money, and I don't think they made it too far into the jungle with all that money. Um, um, the two lawyers uh, ended up fighting each, not fight, not fighting for real, but they were bickering the whole way out, um, and. Charles Charles Gary, I don't know that he ever really recovered from this because you know he died a number of years later. But I think it really took the wind out of his sails because he realized he had done something vile. Mark Lane, you know, was such a you know kind of a scurrilous character, kind of kind of a, a, a um, you know just just a rogue. And um, he, I don't think he took it very hard because he kept spinning various conspiracy theories about it over the years. Even though I know he knows. It was true. The interesting thing about what happened in San Francisco, what happened in Guyana when they started killing people, it was so efficient that it was over within a few hours. They killed the children first because they thought if you're an adult and you're seeing little kids die, your will to live is going to be sapped. They had spent less than a penny per person on doses of cyanide um, that um, it, uh, you know ultimately killed people within you know within a minute or so. People were frothing at the mouth. They were going into convulsions. Um, you know, their eyes were doing crazy things. And they were taking cyanide with Flavor-Aid and some Valium that they thought was going to dull the pain, but it really didn't work. The Valium didn't get go into your system the way that cyanide goes into your system. So in a very short period of time, it was very efficient. Within a few hours, you had about 900 people dead from this. Um, the the four, There were four people that escaped that um, – Jim Jones didn't allow to escape. And two of them were old African-Americans who kind of, saw, one of them saw what was going on, thought, you know, I better go back to my my bed. The other one fell asleep through it. And then there were two street smart African-Americans who who saw what happened and left and said, I'm, I'm getting out of here. And they found a way to get out of Jonestown. But other than that, you know, Pretty much everyone was killed. And so it was, uh, you know, there were people on the airstrip, including Congressman Leo Ryan, who were killed, and some people escaped from that. But of the people who were in Jonestown when the killing started, um, only four people who Jones didn't allow to, to escape from this escaped from it. So they were pretty good at what they did.
0: And he, he had a lot of prep, which leads into this next question is talking about the warm up routines, mm-hmm. the actual, along with the body count increase day after day. I think you've wrote you. about the white knights and. Jones just hammering people with propaganda. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the interesting things that I discovered, I, I spoke to a guy named, um, and I met, mentioned him before, but um, uh, uh, Stone, I'm, 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 his first name is escaping me, but he was he was, uh, Gray Stone and Tim, Tim Stone. So Tim Stone was one of Jones, it was Jones's chief lieutenant. They had a falling out. In the 70s, in 1975, he came to what was called a planning commission meeting. And there were about 100 people there. And Jones was surprised because this man usually didn't come to planning commission meetings. And he had a life outside of the temple, one of the few people. I mean, he had a job as an attorney. He drove a Porsche for a while. I mean, he was not living like the people in People's Temple. Jones says to him, listen, no matter what you see here tonight, I want you to know I don't believe in suicide. And Stone thought that this was peculiar and said, okay, And so they were given wine, everyone there, in about five minutes, which was unusual because you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. So this was a luxury. We're giving everyone wine. And Jones said about five minutes later, listen, that wine has been laced with poison. You're all going to die in five minutes. Some people started freaking out. Some people correctly interpreted it as a loyalty test. There was one woman who, a really overweight overweight woman who was a loyalist, a white woman from from Indianapolis. She started really going crazy, and someone came up with a gun and shot her three times. Now, this was false. There were there were these were blanks, and this woman was in on the act. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, a woman I spoke to uh, interviewed for this black woman um, thought that it was real to this day. She thought she got shot. She thought. Or she thought she was. She, She thought she'd been made a pariah. She wasn't made a pariah. She just, everyone thought she was made a pariah, but she was so loyal to Jones that she did this mission for him. So if you're watching that, if you're in the room, the message, because nobody dies, the message is just, you know, drink what he gives you. Don't rebel because you can be made a pariah if you rebel um, and everything will be okay. So they went on with these tests for a number of years and in Jonestown, Jones propagated this idea of a siege mentality that maybe the CIA was going to come in or the Venezuelan uh, military they were going to invade and they were going to kill all their children because they were communists and these other people weren't. They were going to get them all because of what they were doing, because they were doing something so great the world couldn't see it. And people started to believe that. And you had people shooting guns outside the perimeter and they thought they were under attack. And so that led into an idea that, hey, we're under attack you know, they're going to kill our babies. They all believed in Jones. You add to this, this conditioning with, with, the, with the wine test that the, the leadership had done over the years. Um, and you think about how your brain works when you're being starved, when you're being deprived of sleep, when you're closed off from all of your relatives, um, when you're worked 16 hours a day in that hot sun. And you start to understand that why these people did what they did. Now, if you listen to the death tapes, Um, Jones quite clearly says, you know, we're we're dying, we're we're not committing suicide, we're committing revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. He says that they're doing this for the glory of communism. And the thought was that everyone would look at these people with this revolutionary suicide and see, wow, these people basically just went on strike against the world. They put their lives on the line. We really need to get rid of capitalism and institute communism. That was the idea. Now, sounds very idiotic in in looking back on it, but that's what some of those people really believed.
0: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And also kind of his ideas or his vision of some kind of equality didn't quite play out as well as at least his propaganda was concerned. Would you agree with that?
1: (coughs) Yeah. um, I mean, one of the interesting things about Jones is that um, he had a type. Um, with women, at least, he had a type. I think with men, he was trying to just assert his dominance. With women, and he wanted to embarrass people and humiliate them and shame them. Um, With women, he had this kind of 70s type. You remember those posters of Farrah Fawcett, right? So he had these kind of very skinny, almost anorexic, um, small-breasted white women who were young, um, you know, in their early 20s. There was one instance where he, he deviated from that. There was a young black woman in her teens, that had went out with one of her sons, one of her adopted son, one of his adopted sons. And he came on to her. And, you know, when you're 17, 18 year old girl, a four, you know, being a 47 year old man, uh, you know, young girls, young women are not all that attracted to 47 year old men. It's reality. Um, Jones came on to this girl. He was 47 and she was like, I don't want any part of this. He was kind of paunchy and you know, <laughs> was not looking his best. Drugged and he, he decided that she was insane for this and needed to be drugged. And so they drugged her into compliance. And, you know, um, and I know people that witnessed this, that she was drugged every day and she was almost she was basically incoherent. And that's how Jim Jones was able to force himself on her. So did he rape people down there? Yes, he did. Did he do things that nowadays we might consider rape? Certainly, maybe in those days they didn't. If you're basically using his power to um, to have sex with, with his followers. Um, he did that, and and sometimes he used things like drugs to to accomplish that fact
0: but also the the ethnicity of the people 's temple was what sixty f two thirds african american and it didn 't quite play out that they were involved in the kind of equal it was like uh, a lot of the white people were the ones making decisions as well as jones and the other but That's ones absolutely
1: right. In, in in Jones's cottage, it's not like he was living in luxury, but the guy had a tea a refrigerator and, you know, drinking Pepsis and having the meals he wanted to have, whereas everyone else was living a different life. The people that were going to be spotted around that cabin were white people, primarily young white women and a few um, young uh, a white guy and, and a few others. But there is something very stark uh, in when you look at the people who died. You know, they were primarily African-American, about two-thirds of them African-American. A lot of them were old people and some of them were very young people. But the people calling the shots, um, the women around him, who who almost towards the end had as much power as Jim Jones, um, they were young white women and also a guy who, um, Larry Schacht, who was a, a doctor of some sort. Jones sent him down to Mexico to get a medical degree. He was doing all these experiments, you know, experimenting with pigs, killing pigs with cyanide. How much? How big of a dose would you need to kill a human, and that kind of thing? He was heavily involved in it. Um, I, one of the interesting things I, I spoke to a member of the Jonestown basketball team, and he was a friend of Jim Jones' son, his, his natural-born son. And they went to Georgetown to play basketball um, the day of the suicides, but they had a idea that. Something bad was going to happen. And so they began to plot. And they had a scheme that involved a shovel, a pretense, and a gun. And they were going to bring Jim Jones out into the, the jungle, have a hole dug, put a couple of bullets in the back of his head, and that would be the end of it. They went to play basketball. And, as a, and, and, and prior to that, they went to uh, Marceline Jones and said, you know, we want to do this. This is getting dangerous. And she said, well, wait. Can you, can you wait till you come back from your basketball game to do it? I think you're right. When they came back from the basketball game, it was to identify bodies. So the situation would have been so much different had their, um, you know, I don't know how much of it was just daydreaming or how much they were serious, but the gentleman I spoke to indicated that they were serious. They, they knew the situation was dire. So at several points along the way, people could have changed history, uh, but it didn't work out that way, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just a ter- terrible tragedy. I mean, you know, one of the strangest stories, but uh, we're at almost an hour. Dan, do you have anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed or anything you're working on or you can reach Well, you know, I work,
1: I work on a newsletter every day called Spectator AM that's affiliated with the American Spectator, um, always working on a book. But I have to tell you, you know, this took 10 years to write. Um, and when you write something for 10 years, um, it, it takes a lot out of you and, and um everything after that almost becomes anticlimactic. So I need to get my juice up for, for a new book. Um, But mainly what I do is, is um, I do, I write spectator AM column. It's a paid newsletter every day. You can subscribe to the American spectator. I also write a free column every week at the American spectator. It usually comes out on Fridays. So if people are interested in that, go to the spectator. They're interested in the book, cult city, Dan Flynn, you can buy it wherever
0: can you can you buy it at your website is it at flinfiles.com can you get a signed copy
1: Um I think if they email me I could get it get someone a signed copy but um, my my flinfiles website is uh has had better days I need to sort of bring that back from the dead um I used to be very active on that but now it's just sort of a static site but if someone were to email me I could uh, you know and we could arrange for for them to get a book What
0: email address would you like to use Do you mind Um
1: you, flintfiles at gmail.com is That's my great. email
0: all right. Awesome. Again, great interview. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you taking time out to discuss the book. Again, the title of the book is Colt City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and the 10 Days That Shook San Francisco by Daniel J. Flynn. Excellent book. Highly recommended. Thank you Thank so much, you so Dan. much. Appreciate, right, appreciate it. You too. Bye-bye. Still there?